Hi, I'm Sean. I've always been curious about the answers to life's big questions. I thought it would be cool to seek some of those answers through conversations with others on a similar path. My intention with these conversations is to inspire you to think bigger, to challenge what you believe to be possible. I'd like to invite you to think outside the lines. Hey, it's Sean, and I want to welcome you to the Think Outside the Lines podcast, where my objective is to bring you insightful conversations with thought leaders who are doing their part to make the world a better place. Now, I want to tell you about a couple of exciting things in the works. First up, I've just relaunched thinkoutsidethelines.com, which I'm pretty excited about since I now offer virtual coaching, which gives me the opportunity to connect with and mentor people all over the world. And you can also learn more about me, about the podcast. We've also got some other cool stuff in the works over there, so be sure to head over and check it out. And if you aren't already, please follow me on Instagram. You can do that at Think Outside the Lines. It helps you stay up to date with all the latest guests and everything related to the show. And lastly, I'd love if you'd head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review for the show. I've got some amazing guests coming up, and the best way for new listeners to discover the show is for Apple to promote it. And they do this when a show receives great reviews in addition to streams and downloads. I want to thank you so much for your support. I'm super grateful to everyone who listens, and I'm excited to bring you some great content in the future. My guest today is the creator of YourCourageousLife.com. She's also the director of the Courageous Living Coach Certification and author of The Courage Habit, How to Accept Your Fears, Release the Past, and Live Your Courageous Life. She helps individuals, teams, and companies see where old fear-based habits have kept people stuck or started to limit what's possible for an organization and then start creating more courageous lives by getting into the courage habit, a four-part process for behavioral and organizational change. I must tell you that this incredibly insightful conversation converted me into a super fan. I love her mission and her passion for helping others, and I'm so excited for you to meet her today. And because there is so much to digest, this conversation will appear in two parts, so be sure to check back next week for part two. All right, it's time to think outside the lines with Kate Swoboda. Tell me what you're doing to make the world a better place. I, you know, and even this still feels big to say for me, um, I am helping people to tap into their most courageous selves. And I think that we have to draw from an internal well so, you know, you can't you can't draw water from an empty well, right? So part of that means each of us as individuals has to wake up and become our own most courageous selves. And through that process, we end up helping other people to do the same. Love that so much. Now, we talked a little bit before we started recording, but I, I read your amazing book and I spent a ton of time on your website and listening to You Have Two Podcasts. Um, and I just want to say that in the brief time that I've been exposed to your work, I have become a super fan. And I'm incredibly inspired by your mission, and I'm so excited to dive in today. I want to start, um, a through line in your mission is courage. And I know that you're also known as Kate Courageous, and I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that. Um, but first, I'd love if you could start by kind of defining that word and tell me why it's so important to you. Well, I think that courage, I define courage as feeling afraid, because you're never going to get out of that part. Diving in any way. Because, you know, what do you want to do? Stay stuck. Not usually what most people want to do. And transforming. And 
if you do the first two, you're always going to get the third one. So feeling afraid, diving in any way, transforming. And even if that transformation looks like just a little inch, it's a worthy transformation. Um, and I think the word courage is so important to me, um, especially in this definition, because I, I say you're going to feel afraid. Like this is not fearless. This is not being without fear. But courage is so important to me because I don't see how I would have done anything in my life without it. I don't really see how we will create a better world without it. I don't really see how we can be emotionally vulnerable and connected to other human beings that we love or raise great children or, um, you know, help people when they're suffering without it. I don't see how we can experience joy without it. And you know, lots of different people say we're here in the world to make it better for other people or we're here in the world to like love each other. Or we're here in the world to um, just to be happy, to do whatever makes us happy. And it's like, well, courage is going to be a, requ a, a required part of any of those paths, regardless of which one you you say is why I'm here on the planet. Can you talk a little bit about how you integrate this this concept into the work that you do with your clients? Oh, well, I mean, it's, mm, that's almost, uh, I'm like sitting here, like, which piece do I grab at? It's almost <laughs> like the fish swimming in water, because it's everything, yeah. right? Because I come from the perspective that people are actually really smart. I mean, for sure, there are times where we get stuck, and we look around and we go, hey, everybody, I'm stuck. Do you know of what I might need to do here? And somebody's like, well, did you think of this? And you're like, I hadn't thought of that. But for the most part, you know, it, it's like if, if your marriage is having trouble, is there really anyone who's clueless about the fact that maybe speaking to one another respectfully is like something you should do? Is there anyone who doesn't know that date nights or some kind of connected time is going to be helpful? Well, I, I don't think there really is. What stops us from speaking respectfully in that moment is how vulnerable it feels to speak respectfully because you know, in an argument, we usually argue and get angry because we want to be in control. What is difficult is our fear of that vulnerability. What's difficult is the the fear that we have that if we say to our partner, hey, let's go get that connected time together, that it'll turn into another argument or maybe they'll be shut down and won't want to do it and then we'll feel rejected. Like it's it's always fear that's at the root of things. And sometimes people will say to me, well, I don't really have problems with fear. I, you know, but I, I get overwhelmed and it's like, well, the same difference to me, we're just, it's like a big bucket that we're labeling fear. And if you want to put procrastination, anxiety, overwhelm, perfectionism, sabotaging yourself, pessimism, people pleasing, avoiding, you know, it's like you can put all those things in there. It's all in the same bucket. So how does it thread throughout our lives? Well, it's informing you know, just about every decision that we make, whether we're conscious of it or not. And when I'm working on it with a client or with a trainee in my program or what I'm hoping someone will do if they read any of my work is they'll start getting conscious because the biggest hindrance is either not being aware of how fear is limiting someone's life or being aware about sticking your head in the sand and going, well, I, I don't really need to deal with that. I don't really have fear. That's not really my problem. You know, it's something else. Yeah. But. it's Fear is such a, uh, I want to talk a lot about fear a little bit because I think that that's such a critical, like 
elements in terms of what's wrong with our society today. And I think that you touch upon it so much in your work that I, I want to really elaborate. Um, but you said something a second ago that I want to go back to because I actually have the note in my outline about, so your book is called The Courage Habit, um, How to Accept Your Fears, Release the Past, and Live Your Courageous Life. And at the beginning of the book, you say that the the, the most courageous work you'll ever do is being willing to look squarely at who you are, the life you're creating, and change course if you aren't happy. And there's something about that that feels so simple, but to you know the point of what you were just speaking to, sometimes we don't look at the most simple solutions to things, right? Oh yeah, I mean, <laughs> it it would it would it would overhaul my life to go on a you know thirty day you know juice cleanse with you know Ayurvedic herbs and a retreat center away from my in laws. And I'm not speaking for myself in case my in laws are listening, but I'm just saying like hypothetically, like that's sure. what we want to do with it, right? We want to make it all this external stuff. Like if I could just get a different job, a million dollars, a size zero body, the best partner ever, multiple orgasms, you know, those are all great things. Like if the universe is listening and wants to hand them to me, (laughs) great. We're all willing to receive, right? Yeah, I'm always willing to, well, I don't know that I have an interest in being size zero, but the multiple orgasms, sign me up. Totally. Um, You know, it's, it's very like all the things that we want that are out there, Uh, you know, this is why we hear so many stories of all the people who go, I was that person, I got to the top of the company and into the C-suite, or I had all the success on paper that anyone could ever want, but I wasn't really happy. It's because it's not the stuff out there that makes you happy. And I know that's a really pithy thing that gets repeated and, you know, put on, um, you know, posters in executive boardrooms about, you know, happiness comes from within. But it, it actually, <laughs> it is true. Yeah. <laughs> it actually is true. And most of us are unhappy because we feel stuck in our fear. We feel stuck in our perfectionism. We feel stuck in our pessimism. And and that's a really hard place to be. Agreed. Agreed. I, I have to say, I think what I love the most about your book as opposed to others in the genre is that you really try to focus on like actual solutions and techniques as opposed to, you know, like trendy and sexy mantras that a lot of these people throw out there. Um, and I feel like your approach to these topics, it's, it really comes with a level of like honesty and self-awareness that I personally think allows the reader to identify with what you're talking about. So having said all of that, um, I want to dive in a little deeper because in the book you talk about the four part courage habit process. Um, and I'd love to briefly touch upon these four parts if you don't mind. Oh, of course. Cool. Yeah. Um, I gotta say, like, um, I when I first started self help work, I thought self help work was like such BS. So that's part of why I try to make everything really pragmatic because I just know that if nobody had made it pragmatic for me, I, I probably wouldn't have done it. Um, so, and and then that's part of what informed the courage habit itself. So I'll talk about the four part process. I didn't invent it. These are all things that when I sat down was writing the book and said, what does the research tell us about what builds people's emotional resilience, which is really another way of thinking about courage, emotional resilience. You can withstand challenges and still be emotionally resilient. Um, this is what emerged, the, the four things. And you can do all of them. You can do one of them. Of course, it's more effective to do all of them, do it regularly and actually create it as a, as a habit. So the four parts are first, accessing the body. Um, That really emerged in the research as anything from mindfulness practices to exercise. Fear 
is in the body. We feel it in the body. We can't logic our way through it. So we have to have some way of recognizing fear sensations when they arise and attending to them so that the feelings don't hijack our system and have us making decisions that are fear-based. The second part is to listen without attachment. So I found nothing in the research that said telling your fear to shut up and go away was an effective approach. In fact, what I found was that with what usually is called clinically ruminative thinking, um, it was helpful for participants in different studies to identify what their specific ruminating thought patterns were and to really go, let me slow down with this. Let me listen without attachment. I'm listening to it, but I'm not attaching to it as true. The third part of the courage habit process is to reframe limiting stories. And I really feel like it piggybacks on listening without attachment, because once you've listened without attachment to that voice of fear, it's really natural to go, well, okay, I don't just want to listen. I want to like do something with this. And reframing limiting stories is what you can do with it. Um, I'm often very big on saying that, um, this is not necessarily positive affirmations unless you like positive affirmations. If it works for you, great. Um, but really what I'm talking about with reframing limiting stories is simply taking a story, an internal narrative that fear is giving you, such as who do you think you are to do that and reframe it into, I don't know that I have to be someone to do it. I just want to do it. So like super pragmatic, it doesn't have to go from who do you think you are to I am the best in the world. Uh, it can just go like one little notch in the direction of a thought that feels more supportive for what you're trying to do, what you're trying to create. If I may interject for just a moment, yeah. I, I apologize for interrupting, but that, that part to me feels really big because I do think that a lot of personal development work sends you in that direction of just pretend everything's fine until it is. And when that doesn't work for people, because to your point, it, it doesn't work for a lot of people, um, they give up or they, yeah. in my case, stop reading the book. Or, you know what I mean? And so I think mm -hmm. that, like, I love the way that you say that because you you can still reframe things in such a way that, that feels comfortable to you and makes sense to you and will help you through whatever it is you're going through. So I really, really love that one. Oh, I'm so glad. Well, that too is born of you know, formerly being someone who, who just felt like a liar every time she tried positive affirmations. Totally. And I mean, like I said, I, I really am big on like, if something works for someone's life, do it right. Like if you are like the biggest, you know, the person listening to this is the biggest Louise Hay fan ever. And like, you love positive affirmations. They lift you up. I'm like, do it. That's great. But for the people for whom that hasn't worked, it's helpful to know that there's this thing called reframing limiting stories and and that the practice is supported in research in you know that's been done into acceptance and commitment therapy, dialectical behavior therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, narrative therapy. There are multiple therapeutic modalities that support that identifying ruminating thoughts and then reframing them in a direction that feels um, more positive, more in alignment with where you want to go. Um, can be really helpful for people and it can be really helpful for anxiety, for depression. I was going to ask you, can you actually give us an, another example from like an anxiety framing? Because I think that like, I know that for me personally, and I think there's a lot of people listening that like anxiety has just become this thing in our society in 2019. Right. And I'd love to like, if you could just use the example of like, um, I don't know, getting on an airplane or so, you know what I mean? Something that you, 
that you've either coached your clients through or helped people reframe those sort of things? Well, I'll speak to like just an example, like getting on an airplane that might be more related to a phobia and phobias are a little bit outside of what I do. The work I I do could be applied to them, I suppose, but I'm not a a therapist in that area. So I don't want to say that necessarily. Life coaches got to like, we got to (laughs) like stay in our lane. You know what I mean? Totally, totally. Um, Ethically. But I'm thinking of more like emotional fears that people have. So, so how about, um, you know, the classic, I don't have enough time. I'm never going to get all this done. I've got so much to do. I don't have enough time. Never going to get all this done. And that starts running. It's like what you got to do. If you were to apply this courage habit process, it would be first, accessing the body and for some people this is why i talk about not just mindfulness based practices like meditation but also exercise like for me one of the best ways for me to do something to access my body when i'm full of anxiety is to throw around some barbells and crossfit like like it takes me out of my head to like do you know a clean jerk snatch type you know move and like you know like really lift it and um I, you know, that that's an anxiety dissipator for me in a way that meditation isn't always it doesn't always have the same quality. And then if I'm still like, eh, it's like, all right, listen, without attachment, maybe even grab a piece of paper. What's my fear saying here? My fear is saying you're never going to get it done. There's not enough time. And reframe that limiting story. Well, I think fear is just a wound. I don't think it's the enemy. So what I really actually want to do is instead of making fear wrong for going, there's not enough time, I want to give it comfort. Got it. You feel like there's not enough time. Well, here's my reframe. There's as much time as there is. What I get finished does not define who I am. It doesn't mean anything about me. I might not get everything finished and I think I'll be okay. So it's like a self-talk, a positive self-talk. And, and that's, you know, the work that I, that I do, you know, that's the work I'm doing when, you know, Facebook goes down and I'm going, Oh, I didn't get that update out. It's like, well, you know, (laughs) this is life. Sometimes Facebook goes down, you know, there's so much to unpack in that. I want to let you finish the last one before I move on to my line of questioning. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Um, well, and the fourth part of the courage habit is to reach out and create community. Again, clinical research supports this idea Um, You don't have to have a real-time community who's right there with you. You could be in a program on some private forums with other people. You could be listening to this podcast. Like you can be part of, as a podcast host, you know, you are part of people's community because you're trying to bring them stories that uplift, inspire, help them to see that there are people in the world who want to make the world a better place. This is part of reaching out and creating community. Now, it for sure is probably like the the best if you have someone you can text and go I'm having a really crap day can we talk but you know any way of connecting with other humans beyond yourself can be really really beneficial love that and totally agree and thank you so much for sharing all that I so one of the things that you've said is that there's no such thing as fearless and I actually heard someone else say this recently and it was literally like this revelation that I can't explain because I have spent most of my adult life aspiring toward fearlessness. Um, and so when I heard that it's not even a thing, like it just felt like this weight had been lifted. <laughs> and so well, you let me, let me, let me make sure I'm understanding because yeah. this is the paradox. 
when you realized there was no fearless that you were going to attain, did you feel a little bit more fearless? <laughs> yes, absolutely. No, and that's that's the point I'm trying to make because I'm so fascinated by the concept of fear because I just I personally believe, and you alluded to this earlier in the conversation, but it manifests itself in so many ways that we don't even realize, right? And so I just I want to dive deeper into this because I think it's so big. Um, and so I'd love if you could just talk a little bit more about the word fear and maybe even like, I know that there's sure. self-doubt and kind of how those things are intertwined. I'm really passionate about this. <laughs> I think they're all, you know, like I said, they all go in that same bucket. Um, and in the courage habit, I talk about four predominant fear patterns and I encourage people to identify and label which one is most dominant for them because yeah. I think, um, it gets a little e when you pattern recognition makes it easier to go oh hold on a second i'm doing that pattern again let me take a breath let me access the body let me listen without attachment reframe limiting stories reach out you know create community and that you know that moment of recognition um, and awareness as i talked about earlier is what's so important so we all do all of these fear patterns um it's not about Oh, I don't do that one. Yeah, you do. Everybody does all of them at least a little bit somewhere in their lives. It's just usually one hooks them more than the rest. And they are um, perfectionism. I'm like a ding, ding, ding over here. That's my my biggest one. Um, perfectionism. Most people know what it is. Um, you you know, for some people, it's going to show up as trying to look actually perfect. For other people, it's going to look like trying to be, as I think Elizabeth Gilbert put it, be beyond judgment. Um, so just trying to like, not, you know, to be impervious to criticism, um, people pleasing or martyrdom, um, showing up for other people before you show up for yourself. That's a fear pattern, prioritizing other people's needs, handling things for other people that actually they are totally capable of handling. And people do this at work. People do this with their children. Um, you know, it's a big thing that can come up for moms. Pessimism, which like there are a lot of reasons to be pessimistic in the world today, although I would counter that there are also a lot of reasons to be hopeful. But pessimism is another one, probably the hardest one for most people to own. And pessimism is feeling like, what's the point? It's all so bad. I'm not going to make a difference. Well, so and so already did it better than me. So why bother? You know, it's that like be realistic kind of a thing. And then self-sabotage. And really all the patterns are forms of self-sabotage, but I, I call out a, a self-sabotage pattern to help people to recognize when they're going into shiny object syndrome, two steps forward, one step back. Or I think the really classic self-sabotage maneuver that I notice in my own life is telling the absolute wrong person about my big idea or plan. Like the person who's going to be all like wet blanket, I don't know, that sounds like a lot of work or, you know, stuff like that. So self-sabotage kind of deserves its own category in the sense that you can, you can thwart your own progress in a very deliberate way if you are, are partaking in that pattern. So, you know, which of these patterns is the one that hooks you the most and how do you get really clear about where that pattern shows up in your life? And then, you know, what people often think is going to happen is they're going to go, oh, okay, great. Pessimism pattern. I'm just going to not do that anymore. And I like to say, give yourself a little more room because probably how it'll work is you will do it again. But what will be important is that you'll go, you know, this moment of like, oh, wait, hold on a second. 
I'm doing this pessimism thing. Hold on. Let me let me take a breath. Let me. All right. I need to do something that is rerouting this habit of going into, you know, fear based pessimism. I need to step into something that's going to create courage as a habit. I, so I love what you said specifically about um, self-sabotage because I think that that actually plays a much bigger role and like I, we could probably do an entire podcast on that um, in people's lives and they realize. And I, I love oh, yeah. the example that you gave um, because I think that we've all done that. I actually did that very recently. So I'm embarking on a new endeavor in my personal and actually my professional life too. And I recently shared it with someone, much to your point, and it was immediately that wet blanket. And Obviously, that immediately takes you out of any excitement or enthusiasm that you're or passion that you're feeling about the endeavor, right? And I think it's so important to recognize those sort of things because I think that's what stunts our growth, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, how do we get conscious about the behaviors that we are doing instead of trying to quickly, you know, bypass our way over to something more aspirational? It's like, oh, yeah, this is hobbling me. Um I feel like one of the biggest, you know, people have been asking me lately questions like, well, what, what's probably like the biggest self-sabotage behavior? Hands down to me, it's not being consistent about having a daily practice. When I see that someone has daily practices in their life and it, you know, notice I said daily, not morning, because there are some people who are like, I don't have a morning practice. I don't have any time in the morning. It's like, no, it's daily. So some kind of practice daily that's like, what is my priority for today? Am I taking some time for gratefuls and appreciation? Am I taking some time to just breathe and bring my somatic system down and relax? You know, and these are these are things that are free to do and people are like, well, I don't have the time. Well, yeah, you do. You know, like really? Yeah, you do. You got five minutes. Everybody's got five minutes. Can we expand and... on that a bit? Because I, I, I really agree with you. And I think that especially in the personal development state space, it's very gri- driven or geared toward like you have to have a morning routine or whatever. And to your point, some people don't have that time in the mornings. But how do you then suggest that people allocate that time in their day? Because I do think that, you know, it, it'll be it'll look different for different people. But I imagine you get that refrain, that excuse often that is, I just don't have the time. How do you help people, any tips, any, to to really find that time and make it a priority? Well, I mean, do you understand that it's part of how you feed yourself emotionally? You know, would you eat breakfast this morning and then go, you know what? I'm good. I don't need to eat breakfast for the rest of the week because I did this morning. Yeah. Would you eat today and then go, you know what? I ate breakfast, lunch, and dinner today. I don't need to eat anything tomorrow. You know, it's like, <laughs> it, it, it's literally that important. So, so it is impossible to me that, that someone can really say, I want to move my life forward, but I'm not going to prioritize five minutes, five minutes, really, to just take some time to breathe or to just take some time for gratitude. You can do it in the car. You can do it in the shower. You can do it while you're eating your breakfast. You can do it, you know, like there's, there's, you know, like there's just, um, I mean, and of course I'm aware of privilege. And of course, if someone is working, you know, 20 hour days in a sweatshop, you know, I'm, I'm not, that's not who I'm speaking to right now. Yeah, totally. You know, like, 
really what we need are the people who are not working 20-hour days in a sweatshop to be doing this work so that they can give themselves more capacity so that they can start looking around and going, how the hell do we live in a world where people work 20 hours a day in a sweatshop and what can I do to stop that? Totally agree, totally agree. Like, it's how you feed yourself and you can't feed yourself once a week and then go, oh, I'm fed for the week. It's, I always know that someone's really for serious about their life when they are for serious about a daily practice of some kind. 20, 30 minutes is of course more ideal. Um, that's where the research kicks in about like if you meditate for 20 minutes a day, you start to build more of the gray matter in your brain and that's the stuff that actually um, will enable you when you're presented with stress to not react to it so quickly. So if you, you want to get the benefits of like going into your job that has a lot of stressful deadlines or managing a toddler and they have meltdowns. If you want to get to a place where that stuff doesn't phase you as much, you're going to have to invest more like 20 or 30 minutes, but just even five minutes is better than no minutes. Yeah. I, the reason I wanted to place such emphasis on this is because I can personally speak to you in recent experience. So I start, I've always flirted with meditation, but I've never really taken it seriously as a habit. And it's, it's been very recently within like the last probably, I would say a month or two um, that I have made it a daily practice. And the thing that's really interesting to me is that, yes, you always have those people that say, well, I literally can't find the time. You can, if you choose, wake up 15 minutes before everybody else in the house. Or, you know what I mean? Like there's, there's typically, and again, the people that we're speaking to are not, you know, the people with 10 kids and literally no time for sleep. Maybe, I don't know. I'm just... The point I'm trying to make is that since integrating that 15 minute habit into my life, for me, it is in the mornings. I have noticed the point that you just made. Stress feels so different to me now and things that come at me, I react to them in such a different way than before I started meditating. And that one habit alone has been incredibly life changing for me. Yeah. Yeah. I often think that people, uh, that there's a real fear of getting into presence-based practices on a regular basis because we we live in a society this is a, a rampant generalization but hey why not um <laughs> we live in a society that where people are full of stress and in order to manage the stress they start numbing out and shutting down which means that this sort of we'll call it like a metaphorical emotional balloon within each of us gets stuffed full and stuffed full and stuffed full because we're not dealing with it we're not feeling what we feel we're numbing out from what we feel so a big fear that happens for a lot of people or what I think is subconsciously at least behind a lot of people's resistance to some kind of presence-based practice. And it, and it does not have to be Zen meditation staring at a wall. It could be that you do yoga. It could be that you listen to guided meditations free on the Insight Timer app. It could be so many different things, but something that gets you tapped into your body. Well, people resist that because they've been stuffing their emotions and stuffing their feelings for so long that literally those first few times they sit down, they usually are going to feel totally overwhelmed. That's where you get the story of the person who decides to start meditating and then their brain is racing and they're like, holy crap, what is in there? You know? Yeah, totally. (laughs) Like there's so much in there. I didn't, you know, and it's whizzing around. Why does anyone recommend doing this every day? It's awful, you know? (laughs) And, and it is when you have a backlog of stuff and, um, you know, I mean, if we could go with, again with this metaphor about emotional nourishment and how you can't, you know, you can't physically nourish yourself one day of the week and expect that to carry for the week. You can't emotionally do it either. Well, when someone's physically malnourished, like as a clinical condition, 
you actually can't start stuffing them with food. Their body will reject the food. Their organs have and their digestive system will not do well with the food. You actually have to start them back on food. Like if somebody's actually malnourished, you have to start them back on food very slowly. And it's the same thing, I think, with meditation. It's like, you know, you don't have to go from not doing it to I'm going to do two hours a day and be enlightened. Five minutes. We, we like give ourselves so much, you know, such a tough time over just five minutes. Start there. Yeah. And the thing I learned about meditation specifically is that um, I think we associate it with like being in a pose, like being a monk almost, you know what I mean? And just being like uber present and what meditation really is is it's just letting things be as they are for that 5 10 15 minutes whatever right you don't have to it can look very different to different people um but it's really about just finding that presence and breathing and it's life-changing i'm telling you love um, it yeah. yeah love it uh, you also have some great tips i think you did like a specific podcast on managing anxiety um can you talk a little bit about how you define that word and share some of your steps for navigating it mm. Well, I'm wondering if I would define it differently than whenever I recorded the podcast. Oh, but interesting. In moment, I love that. Well, yeah, you know, definitions are kind of fluid and Absolutely. it comes up comes up in different ways at different times. But, um, you know, I think anxiety, well, I, I do think anxiety is just another word for fear. I think anxiety is often tied to not enough in some way. It's like, you know, what are the big things people feel anxiety around? I feel anxiety about not enough money. I feel anxiety about not enough time. I feel anxiety about me actually not being enough, like social or emotional rejection um, and situations that cultivate that. So we really, I think, have to see anxiety as something of a messenger. I mean, all fear I see as something of a messenger. And instead of trying to get rid of anxiety or hoping that there's some way that we can be happy enough that the anxiety just won't come up or like placate our lives enough that it won't come up, I think we got to process through some of it. And similarly to meditation, you know, one of the things that I do to process through some of my own anxiety is, you know, this accessing the body that I've talked about doesn't have to just be breathing. I do something called conscious crying. And conscious crying is, you know, it's set up kind of like meditation in that I'll set a timer and I literally have some playlists of like the saddest music, you know, those songs that like always make you cry, you know, those. Got lots um, of those. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sia, breathe me. That's like, I'm a puddle every time. Um, and I put it on and literally I will, you know, I feel a lot of anxiety when it does come up um, around the state of the world and around people suffering and how are we going to do something to, to fix it, to heal it, to, you know, um, every time there's a mass shooting, it's like, I don't want to stuff my feelings about that. I don't want to go into a kind of parasitic rage where I'm just like irritated and angry that we live in a world where that continues to happen. And I also feel a real empathy for the people who are impacted by that. So I sit down and I'm like, okay, what do I need to like cry it out about right now? And, you know, the world provides a lot of opportunities to cry things out. And with this conscious crying, the aim is not to go into crying to just kind of wallow in that emotion. The aim is to cry so that I'm not numb and then to get tapped into clear thinking. 
So like if I'm really anxious about what's going on in the world, I'll sit down for some conscious crying. I'll do the same thing sometimes if I'm feeling really tense about something in my working life. Um, you know, I've, I've been pretty candid about, you know, my, my business has like doubled in the last year. It's looking to double, double again. And that means that I need to bring on more people. And it also means that I need to stop running my business by the seat of my pants and actually like operationalize some things and write up ops manuals and stuff like that. And that is, that can be sometimes really overwhelming because I just want to kind of sit around and write things about courage. I don't want to write an operations manual, but I need to, because <laughs> that's adulting in business and that's how we like grow it and totally. spread the message and you know, so that's actually that's actually a really nice transition into what my next question was because I wanted to talk about habits and I'd imagine a lot of what you're struggling with is like having to create new habits around these things that you don't necessarily want to accomplish but you know that you need to. Can you talk a little bit about your thoughts on habit and how we can kind of push through that difficulty that sometimes surrounds the process? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I don't. Hmm. No day of my working life really looks exactly the same. Fair. So I don't really have, I mean, except for I really, I've found that if I don't start my day in the morning with a, like a little time to, well, first of all, daily for me with meditation is morning. For me, that's when it works. But like I got to get a kiddo out the door and I need a little bit of time to breathe after she's out the door or else I just, the creative suffers. And obviously if, you know, I can't create podcasts or, you know, blogs or any of that stuff, then, you know, the whole business, like, where's it, where's it going? What is it? So I don't usually have a day that looks exactly the same aside from taking a little bit of that time in the morning. Um, but to me, the habits that I'm trying to integrate are those habits of, it's like, if I take care of accessing the body, listening without attachment, reframing, limiting stories, reach out and create community. If I'm doing those things, if or when anxiety or fear comes up, then I can just have clear thinking around the productive. Um, so I don't know that that's totally answering your question because I don't have like a set kind of this habit, this habit, this habit. I guess the only other one I can really speak to is a four o'clock CrossFit class every day, but <laughs> that's um, fair. <laughs> most days, most days. Um, but, but every day is a little bit different. I look more at habits through the lens of like, who, who am I being rather than what am I doing? All right. I'd like to thank you so much for listening today. Now, if you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple podcasts as it's the best way to discover new episodes of the show. And please be sure to share this episode with anyone you think could benefit from hearing it. Now you can find the links for everything we talk about in the show notes. In addition to coaching services and so much more, just head over to thinkoutsidethelines.com. And feel free to drop me a line with any questions or feedback you have on the show. You can send an email anytime to hello at thinkoutsidethelines.com. Until next time, go out there and pursue your passion today, because the best way to predict the future is to create it. For more information, please visit thinkoutsidethelines.com.